this past week was an interesting one for me because my wife and uh, my two daughters were, were out of town most of the week with, with friends, and so that left uh, me, and, me and Judah, and so my son, my 10-year-old son, and, and so we had some good man time uh, together and watched some, some good man movies and played some board games and uh, ate some food that mom won't let us eat normally when she's around and uh, had some good conversations. And uh, one of the questions Judah asked me as we were driving somewhere one day is, is he, he leaned over and he said, Dad, what are your, what are your top five movies? And so I would maybe turn that question around on you in, in this morning and just think about, man, what are your top five movies? If you had to make a hit list, what, what would be on your top five? I'm not going to tell you my top five because I want to keep my job, but uh, I told Judah, uh, you can ask him what my top five were. He'll probably remember some of them. But I, as I was thinking about these movies that made, made my top five, um, I, I think really kind of probably outside of comedies, you, you really could break up most movies into kind of two very broad categories, right? So you got what I would call historical dramas and, and what I would call probably sci-fi thrillers, okay? So historical dramas, you're, 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 this is kind of like a movie that's in a certain setting, a time and a place in history, and we, we learn about that time and that place and people who lived in that time and that place. And so if you're a child of the 90s like, like me, uh, think Saving Private Ryan. Or we might even be a little looser and say like Gladiator, right? We learn about Rome and the Colosseum and real historical things through movies like that. Or, or maybe if you're here and you're a lady, Pride and Prejudice, you know? And uh, don't tell anybody, I like that movie too a lot. And, um, but, but just uh, movies that have like a, a time and a place in history, and we learn that that's kind of a historical drama. On the other end of the spectrum, we have sci-fi thrillers, right? So Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Chronicles of Narnia, Avengers, Batman, like all those types of movies uh, that have tons of action and just wild imagery with like otherworldly creatures and it just kind of engages our imagination in a really cool way. And so again, I'm curious just by a show of hands, did this in the 915. This is going to tell us a lot about our church. How many of you would say that you prefer historical dramas? So you, you just have to raise your hand. You like to save in Private Ryan's The Gladiator. Okay. That's maybe like half or so. Uh, the the 915, it was probably 60, 70%. How many of you would say that you enjoy a sci-fi thriller? Like if you got two hours to kill, you just want to watch a sci-fi thriller. Okay. All right. So may, maybe like 40%. Kind of, kind of split. Um, so so here, here's the really cool thing. I enjoy both. I had both on my, on my top five list. Here's the cool thing about the book of Daniel. So if you're new here, we're going through the book of Daniel, an Old Testament book. The really cool thing about this book is that it's half of each. So the, the, the book is made up of 12 chapters. The first six chapters are historical narrative. All right, so we kind of put a wrap on that section last week. The next six chapters, what we're diving into today are what uh, Bible scholars call apocalyptic prophecy, all right? So today we're going to be making a hard shift, right? So we're going to go from second gear to fifth gear. And so kind of just imagine if you're watching Netflix on, on Friday night or something like that, and you switch the, the channel or, or whatever from a historical drama to a sci-fi thriller, right? So we're going to go from what's been a lot of historical stories to what we're going to see today and moving forward, a lot of wild imagery, dreams, visions, prophecy, beast, like just crazy stuff. Now, now here's, here's my caveat in all of this. The, the, first, the last six chapters that we're about to start today are a lot harder to interpret and teach than the, the first half, right? And so y'all just, y'all pray for me uh, today in the next uh, few weeks. In fact, uh, many of the churches that I, that I look, kind of looked at that have taught through Daniel, 
end the series at chapter six. So they, they just kind of end the series where we finished la- last week. So in essence, they just kind of chicken out on the last half of the book. Uh, but, but at New Life, we're not biblical wusses. And so we're going to cannonball right in uh, to the deep end for the next few weeks. And uh, we're just going to see if we uh, sink or swim. Now, here, here's my disclaimer. A lot of people, a lot smarter than me, have spent decades studying Daniel 7 through 12. A lot of people, a lot smarter than me, have spent uh, years and years writing volumes on these chapters. And here's the deal. They, they don't all arrive at the very same conclusions about every detail of this section. And, and so I, I'm going to do my best, just so you know, to kind of stay out of the weeds, to focus on kind of big, clear, overarching themes. The back half of this book, I'm going to st- try to stay away from uh, like date setting and unlocking the code for the day and time when Jesus is going to come back or the Antichrist is going to show up. We're not going to be counting blood moons or anything like that. We're not going to be watching the Left Behind movie series starring Kurt Cameron. Uh, if you watch that, I'm sorry. Terrible theology. Don't watch it. Uh, so, some people, including pastors, will really try to go like very Sherlock Holmes, you know, in the back, that back half of this book and decipher all sorts of times and dates and end times and like all, all kinds of things that I just don't think we're really intended to know. You know, like, I, I just feel like, man, if God wanted us to have all of those details very clearly, he probably would have just, like, spelled them out for us, all right? So, uh, secondly, I, I just want to say, I, my intent is to teach this back half of this book with, with a lot of humility, not dogmatically, realizing that I may not have every detail of this right, all right? So, we're just going to do our best together to kind of dive into this faithfully and a apply the very clear truths to our lives, hopefully in a very uh, meaningful and impactful way. Um, but I think you would agree with me, it's a, it's a tall task. And so let's, let's take just a moment and pause and go to God and ask him to give us clarity and to give us what he wants us to have through Daniel chapter 7 uh, this morning together. Heavenly Father, we come to you and uh, we are grateful for your word. We believe that it is inspired by you, that it is your word to us, to humanity. And so we're grateful, Father, for the parts that are easy to teach. We're grateful for the parts that are uh, a lot more challenging to teach through and to understand, God. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be active and present in this place and in our hearts and minds, that we would be able to understand what it is that you have for us today. And so, Father, we pray now what we know not you would teach us, what we have not that you would give us, what we are not that you would make us for our good and for the glory of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Daniel chapter 7. Hope you have your Bibles. Go ahead and go there if you haven't already. Open it up on your app or your phone. Daniel chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 1. This will also be on the screens for you if you don't have a Bible. It says, in the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon. Now, you remember we got introduced to this character in chapter 5. So the first six chapters are chronological history. We get into the back half, and it's more theological in nature. So that this is not sequential. We're now going back in time. So last week, we finished. Daniel was in his 80s. He's about 60 now when he has this dream. So he's kind of having a flashback, and he's given us a dream that he had uh, in the past. Starting in verse 1 again, King, King Belshazzar, uh, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay uh, in his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matter. Verse 2, Daniel declared, I saw in my vision... By night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now, this is, this is the idea of chaos. So if you think about a compass, right? North, south, east, west. There are winds coming from all four corners of the world, stirring up the ocean. This is the idea of world chaos. 
that we see here, verse 3, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, out of the chaos, different from one another. The first was like a lion, and he had eagle's wings. And as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man uh, in the midst. And, uh, and, and, oh, I'm sorry, I think I, I jumped ahead there. The first one was like a lion, eagle's wings. The wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise and devour much flesh. Verse 6, After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke into pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Ten horns. Now, let's just pause there for a minute. And my first thought after reading that was kind of like lions, tigers, and bears. Oh, my. You know, like, man, what on earth do we make of this? Like, what is going on here, and how in the world does this apply to our lives as modern people uh, living in the United States of America in 2022. This kind of just feels like a wild scene out of one of the sci-fi thrillers, like you flipped on Lord of the Rings or Narnia, and you got all these beasts and visions and horns popping up and all this crazy stuff. Now, we're, we're going to unpack that together in just a minute, but the first thing I need you to know is that Daniel is a, this book is a literary masterpiece, right? The, the more I dig in, the more I study it, the clearer it becomes. This is a divinely inspired book. Right? We're not going to get into all the nuances of it, but this is fascinating. Chapter 7, what we're looking at today, actually parallels chapter 2, so we're going to see that. Chapter 6 parallels chapter 3. Chapter 5 parallels chapter 4. It is exquisitely composed. It is a literary masterpiece. We could spend months really delving into this book and unpacking all the details. Daniel's dream in this chapter parallels, if you were here a few weeks ago, Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. Y'all remember that? Just a few weeks ago, Nebuchadnezzar has this, this crazy dream about a statue, and I think we've got a picture of somebody's depiction of, of, of what he sees. So there's a statue that Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of. It's got a golden head, and as we saw, that represented Babylon, and then the statue's got like the silver chest and arms. That represents Persia, and then there's a bronze torso. That represented Alexander the Great in Greece. And then the, the bronze legs, which represented Rome. So we saw that um, just a few weeks ago. Well, the, the four beasts that we just read about, most scholars uh, seem to think that those four beasts represent those same four kingdoms, all right? So, so Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. So kind of the, the same idea. Again, these chapters kind of parallel each other. Now, it's interesting now in modern vernacular, when we use the word beast, that's pretty much a compliment now, right? So if you see somebody working out in the gym, somebody comes up to you and they're like, man, you're a beast in the gym. That's not an insult, right? They're, they're complimenting you. They're not, man, you're strong. This is amazing. Or a girl gets up and sings and she just blows it and people might be like, man, did you hear her sing? She's a beast on the stage. It's used as a compliment. Now, when my wife comes in the room and my, all my dirty laundry is spread all over the floor and she says, you're a beast, I don't think she means it quite in that way. But, but typically nowadays, it's considered a compliment. But in Daniel chapter 7, it's a different idea here. These beasts represent kingdoms that oppress the people of God. 
All right, now, now most of what we're going to see in this chapter, you should know this, most of what, we, what we're going to see in this chapter has already happened in history, but not all of it. So some of it is still future tense. Now, if you're kind of an Old Testament Bible nerd, you probably already know this, but Old Testament prophecy oftentimes has an already but not yet element to it, meaning there's a near fulfillment and there's also at the same time a far fulfillment, all right? So let's look at these beasts, these four beasts, one by one, and then we'll begin to look at the uh, interpretation, and we'll close with uh, one big idea as an application point. The first beast, go back to your text, a lion with eagle's wings. And the wings, Daniel say, get, get plucked off. Now, if you've been here for this series, I want you to think back to King Nebuchadnezzar. He was one of the major players in the first few chapters of this book, the most powerful king that the world had ever seen up to that point in time. Now, let me ask you this. What do lions represent? They represent power, right? So we're kind of getting this imagery of, of Babylon, of King Nebuchadnezzar. What about the wings getting clipped off of this lion? This speaks to, most scholars believe, how God humbled King Nebuchadnezzar. You guys remember that story just a few weeks ago, right? King Nebuchadnezzar is prideful before God. Daniel gets a drink, comes to him and says, hey, you need to repent. God gives Nebuchadnezzar an entire year to turn from his sin and humble himself. He doesn't for an entire year. So God literally drives him mad. He's driven out into the wilderness where King Nebuchadnezzar lives like a beast in the field. Remember, he talked about how his hair grew out super long and his, his fingernails grew out super long like eagle's talons. And he was out there for seven years until he humbled himself. And then God returned his mind to him and returned his kingdom to him gave him even more greatness. So, so this first beast that we see, this lion that has its, uh, its wings clipped, is representative, most Bible scholars think, of, of Babylon. All right, so that's the first beast, Babylon. Now let's look at the second beast. Let's, give you, let's look at the clues and see if you, if you can figure out who this might be. The second beast, Daniel says, it is a bear, and it's, and it's raised up on, on, on one side. So he needs to go see the chiropractor because he's kind of out of alignment a little bit left shoulder is a little too high. And if you know anything about history, the Medo-Persian Empire, they're the ones that overthrew Babylon, the lion that we just looked at, right? One side, scholars believe, being raised up over the other is that the Persian side of that kingdom was stronger than the Mede side of that kingdom. But then there's this odd thing where this bear's got three ribs in his mouth. Like, what's that about? Well, apparently 2,600 years ago, McDonald's brought back the McRib, and he's loving it. I mean, he's, you know, he's, he's loving the McRib. I got dad jokes all day, all right? Besides this being a terrifying dream, is there any historical significance to this? Well, yes. The, the three ribs, actually there is. Now that we have the benefit of historical hindsight, we know that the Persians, and you can look this up, you can go Google it, they conquered three primary kingdoms. The Persians conquered uh, Lydia in 546 B.C., they conquered Babylon in 539 B.C., and they conquered Egypt in 525 B.C., this is established history. Go look it up. All this is really starting to make sense when we look at this dream through the lens of history, kingdoms and, and kings rising up and, and being brought low. What about the third beast? My personal favorite, a leopard with four wings and four heads. Now, what do leopards represent? Speed, right? As do wings. Both those things represent speed. Now, when we look back at history, was there a kingdom that followed Persia that conquered the known world at speeds never, ever seen before? Yes. 
Greece and Alexander the Great, right? History tells us Alexander the Great, by the the time he was 30 years old, stood at the Danube River and wept because there were no more known kingdoms for him to conquer. It was a kingdom of incredible speed. But what about the four heads? Well, if you know your Greek history, you know that Alexander the Great died unexpectedly in his early 30s before they had a chance to get a succession plan in place. And so the kingdom was divided into four kind of sub-kingdoms, four regions, and his top four generals were giving, given rulership over those four kingdoms that Greece was kind of broken into. And this is, this is history, guys. You can go look this up. This is verifiable. And Daniel is written before any of these events take place. This is, this is incredible. This is astonishing. But what about the fourth, be- the fourth beast, right? Uh, the terror factor kind of escalates for Daniel. This, he says, is an unknown beast. Like, he doesn't even recognize it. He can't compare it to any animal he's ever seen. It's exceedingly strong. Daniel says it has its teeth of iron. So this is just a horrific vision. Um, what kingdom, if you think back to Nebuchadnezzar's a dream of the statue, which kingdom did iron represent? Do you remember? I think somebody just said it. Rome. That's right. So iron represents Rome. Um, and, and we know that historically, Rome was one of the most powerful kingdoms militarily that we have ever seen. And this beast also has 10 horns. What do horns represent? They, they represent power, the ability to injure, to destroy. And so in our, maybe modern days, we would think of like a bull or like a, like a rhino. Like if some, one of those things charges you, you're out in the field, you better take cover, right? Or you're going to get messed up. Right? Well, this beast, Daniel said, it doesn't have one or two horns. It has ten horns, representing incredible power and ability for destruction. Again, historically, that's exactly what we saw in the Roman Empire. They developed a military that like, had, we had never seen in the world before. Now, horns can also, uh, in, in the Bible, represent kings. So perhaps these ten horns, these Roman horns, represent uh, ten rulers in Rome throughout the centuries. That's also a possibility. All of that really kind of makes perfect sense when we look at it through the lens of history. See, apocalyptic prophecy in the Bible is not that hard, right? We can, we can do this. Now, there's a, there's a development. Look at verse 8 on the screens. He said, saw these four beasts, and now he says, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one. Now, that seems like a minor detail. That's actually a big detail. We'll come back to that in a minute before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Now this 11th horn that appears out of nowhere seems to be, as one of my favorite commentary writers, James Montgomery Boyce says, the first biblical appearance of the individual later referred to as the Antichrist. So if you guys have been in church for a while, you've probably heard that word before, the, the Antichrist. We see Paul talk about him in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We see him also in the book of Revelations. Daniel chapter 7 is the first appearance of what appears to be that individual that we refer to as the Antichrist, all right? So this horn, I would say, is it's kind of the idea of evil personified. So it says, eyes like a man, mouth speaking great or boastful or arrogant things. So the idea is this person, this world leader who will rise up will be an eloquent speaker, right? An eloquent speaker, he'll draw many people to himself. Eyes like a human, 
So the, the, the idea as I was studying this part was like, have you ever seen a documentary interview with like a, a serial killer or a, uh, you know, like a cult leader or something like that where you look in their eyes and, man, it looks like human eyes, but you can tell nobody's home. Like human eyes, but there's something really demonic kind of running in the background. That's exactly the picture that Daniel wants us to get here. This is, this is guys, this is a very terrifying dream. Things are not looking good. But things are going to begin to, to shift, to change. In verse 9, this is the, the plot point where things go from hopeless to hopeful where a hero shows up. Uh, when the girls were gone this past week, I told you Judah and I watched a, a couple of guy movies, uh, one of which I'll try not to give too much away in case you haven't seen it, but is a, uh, a new Chris Pratt movie, uh, Tomorrow, Tomorrow War, where these otherworldly beasts just kind of like invade the world. They're called White Spikes. And, that, man, they are just demolishing humanity, man. I mean, just demolishing all the armies of the world, and things seem completely hopeless until a hero shows up, right? And an antidote that can kill these beasts is discovered. Things go from, at that point, there's a plot shift in the movie. Things go from dark and hopeless to hopeful, right? And I tell my kids all the time when we watch hero movies that all hero movies basically follow the same plot line because in a real sense, right, they're all just an echo of the real narrative of humanity. That we were all cast into darkness by our own sin and rebellion against God. We were also deceived by a serpent beast in the garden all those years ago. Things were dark and hopeless until one day the hero, the God-man, Jesus, shows up on a rescue mission to slay the beast and set his people free. It's amazing. This is kind of the plot point that we, we see in verse 9. Look at it with me. Verse 9, he says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. So this is the image now of a courtroom. In the Ancient of Days, God himself is now in the house. Now that, that word, that terminology, Ancient of Days, doesn't mean God's old. It means God is eternal. Right? So it's, it's kind of like when my kids try to prank me, right? Like they, they put something in my drink and they, they think I don't notice it, like they pour some hot sauce in there. Like, hey, Dad, try your Coke. And they're all like giggling in the corner. And, and, I, and I always say, I wasn't born yesterday. I wasn't born yesterday. And this is a picture of God like saying, I, want, I wasn't ever born. <laughs> I was never born. I've always been here. I've always been around. I am that I am. I am the source of all life. And then it goes on to describe God in this setting. It says his clothing was white as snow. Now this represents uh, his, his holiness. See, we serve a God who is, who is holy. He is, he is pure. And so the, the white sort of represents this part of his character. And the hair of his head, like pure wool, his throne was fiery flames and its wheels were burning fire. Now fire in the Bible represents justice and judgment. And wills representing that no evil can escape him, right? No sin will go unpunished. No evil person can run from this God of the universe. Verse 10, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. This is the idea of throngs and throngs and armies of angels just really right at the feet, worshiping the God of the universe, the ancient of days, the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. 
Now, one thing that I think for sure Daniel wants us to know here is that the ultimate authority in this world and in this life belongs to the Ancient of Days. Not Babylon, not Persia, not Washington, D.C., not the Republicans, not the Democrats, not Russia, not China, not Iran, none of those. Ultimate authority belongs to one and one only, the Ancient of Days, the creator that is the God of this universe. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I want to say, say, friend, if you're here and you're placing your hope in anything else except for the Ancient of Days, your creator, you have a misplaced hope. Science won't save you, as grateful as I am for science. Medicine cannot save you, as grateful as I am for the advance of medicine and technology in our world today. All your stuff, the the stuff that you're chasing, your dream house, that car that you think will make you happy, that perfect relationship that you think will make you happy, the vacations, the big bank accounts, listen, all of that stays behind when you die. You take none of it with you. I heard somebody recently say, this was uh, sobering, he said, hey, listen, a hundred years from now, everything that you own will either belong to someone else or will be rotting in a landfill. I just wanted you to think about that for a minute. Everything that you own and you prize right now in your life, 100 years from now, it'll either belong to someone else or it'll be rotting in the landfill. Listen, guys, governments and kingdoms rise and fall. The ancient of days remains the same. Now, look at verse 11. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. Again, remember this little horn representative of this individual that we call the Antichrist. And he's, he's speaking these great, eloquent words. Prideful, boastful, arrogant. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. See, guys, the beast may have their day in the sun, but it is short-lived. You know, I thought back to, you know, for, for, for those of you who grew up in the 90s like I did, the image here I thought of is like boy bands, right? They had their day in the sun but it's a fleeting moment. So I think about the 90s, man, like the Backstreet Boys. Remember them? In sync, 98 degrees, right? Remember those guys? On top of the world, so popular. You know, girls see them in the street and they just pass out. Popular for a hot minute, and now they're all middle-aged, bald man with pot bellies, you know? (laughs) And the world has forgotten about them. So too go the kingdoms of this world. God dispatches this this beastly horn with ease. It's not even a challenge for him, right? He lifts his finger and creation follows his command. It gets even better. Look in verse 12. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. It just means that these kingdoms were not destroyed immediately that their influence and their, their power was diminished on the global scale, but they weren't, they weren't eliminated immediately. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, and I love this part, this is where it gets really good, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a, underline this in your Bible, like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. 
Now, if you are familiar at all with the teachings of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, in the Gospels, he's given many titles, isn't he? Savior, Messiah, Son of God, Shepherd, the Lamb of God. But do you know what title he uses most often for himself? The Son of Man. Right out of Daniel chapter 7. In fact, the Son of Man is used for Jesus 82 times in the four Gospels. You see, Jesus was intimately familiar with the book of Daniel uh, in general and the, and, the, and the chapter 7 specifically. And Son of Man is significant because I think it was Jesus' way of saying, yes, I am divine, yes, I am the Son of God, but I am also human. I have become like you to save you, to rescue you. I love the way that Diedrich Bonhoeffer, a pastor in Nazi Germany times, was actually martyred for, for his faith by the Nazis. I love the way he put it. This will be on the screens for you. Bonhoeffer writes this. It is only because he, Jesus, became like us, in other words, became human, that we can now become like him. Praise God for the gospel. And this is the gospel. Guys, when we had no way to save ourselves, when there were beasts in our life that we had no way to conquer, when we had no way to climb the mountain to get to God, he came off the mountain to find us. And they lived a perfect life and died a sinner's death, and he rose again, and his name is the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, the divine man, the God man, the king of the universe. He is the Ancient of Days. In the Ancient of Days, God the Father gives him all of the dominion, the glory, and a new kingdom that's going to be made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And this kingdom will have no end. And we get the gospel right smack dab in the middle of Daniel, and it's glorious. And it is as if God was saying to Daniel and us today, listen, friend, don't fear the beast of this world. Don't fear the beast of this world because I am still on my throne. And in due time, I, my justice will rain down on those who oppress you. But you need to know in the meantime, I still rule and reign. Now the image as I was studying this week that came to my mind is, some of you guys know, uh, I'm sick, I know, but I, I enjoy watching combat sports, right? So uh, I enjoy watching uh, boxing, MMA, things like that. And so oftentimes Cheryl and I will be laying in bed, and I have to put the kids in, in bed, and she'll be reading some novel over there, and I'll be watching a fight on YouTube on my phone, and, and she'll kind of roll over to see what I'm, I'm looking at, and she'll go, ooh, how do you watch this stuff, right? And I usually just think, well, I have a black heart, empty soul, you know, stop, stop, stop judging me, woman. Go read your, go read your book. Um, but but I, I love combat sports, uh, and one of the things I think I love most is, is watching a title fight where everything is on the line. And a champion is defending his belt, right, against some ferocious competitor that's coming for his belt, coming for his fame, coming for his money, coming for everything. And he defends his belt. He defends his title. He defeats all the challengers. And I love, they kind of stand in the middle of the ring after the fight's over, and the referee lifts up the hand of the victor as the announcer screams at the top of his lungs, and still the undisputed, undefeated, heavyweight champion of the world, right? This is the picture in Daniel chapter 7, right? All the beasts of the world, all the challengers of the world are coming against the God of this universe, the Ancient of Days, and at the end of the fight, 
God's hand gets raised and still the undisputed, undefeated, ultimate authority of all time and history of today, tomorrow, and forever, the ancient of days, right? And I love that. That's the picture that we get here. And so it's a picture of hope now. We started off very hopeless. And now we see the, the hero has arrived. And the story is beginning to take shape and turn a different direction. And Daniel begins to wrap up uh, this dream, starting in verse 15. Read it with me. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. If you had this dream, uh, you would wake up in a cold sweat too. This is a scary dream. Verse 16, I approached uh, one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. So he, he's in this dream, he's in this courtroom, and God is on the throne, and the beasts are being judged, and there's 10,000 angels there. So he goes up to one of the angels. Daniel doesn't understand what's going on, and he says, hey, bro, help me out here. What's, what, what does all this mean? And so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Verse 17, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. Right? We, already, we already figured that out before, before Daniel did. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke into pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and seemed greater than all its companions. Again, a, a picture of uh, this person referred to as the Antichrist by many. Verse 21, as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until, verse 22, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the first fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the other kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it into pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them, and he shall be different from the former ones, and he shall put down three kings. So this is, a, this, we're now talking future tense. So this world leader, uh, this global leader who's going to show up at some point on the global scene is going to rise up. He's going to conquer uh, three kingdoms or nations, apparently. Uh, at least kind of what it looks like. Verse 25, he shall speak words against the Most High. And listen to this. And he shall wear out the saints of the Most High. Now, that, that is significant. That is graphic language. Where this person, this global leader, is going to rise up and he is going to work the church for a period of time. And shall think to change the times and the law. So he's going to change laws. He's going to change the calendar. All kinds of stuff going on. And they shall be given into his hand. Talking about us, the saints, for a time, times, and a half time. Now that's that's a that's a phrase for a certain period of time. We don't know exactly how long that's going to be. A lot of scholars that I studied believe that that is representative of of three and a half years. That that this this world leader is going to rise to power for three and a half years. He's going to torment the church, torment believers. Verse 26, but the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away. So he has his moment in the sun, but it's going to be a short moment. He's a boy band, right? To be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high. 
His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Now, here's the, here's the big idea of the whole text, right? I mean, this is a one-point sermon. Happy Father's Day to you, all right? So if you're going to take notes, this is all you got to write down. The big idea on the screens for you. Though battles may remain in this life, guys, if you're in Christ, the war is already won. The war is already won. Friend, your road in life may be difficult right now. And for some of you, I know that it is because I've talked to some of you this week. Some of you are going through really challenging things physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, financially. Some of you are treading deep, dark waters right now. But know this, if you're in Jesus, in the end, God wins. There are many beasts in this world. God's people have endured trials and hardships since the beginning of time. We really should expect no less. But when King Jesus wins, and he has, we win with him. And when he returns, he's going to establish a forever kingdom, and we are going to rule and reign with him forever and ever and ever. I came across a, a piece of art that, that I loved uh, this week uh, entitled Tomorrow is One. I'll put, the, put it on the screens for you. Depicting the final defeat of the final beast, the dragon, Satan himself, in Revelation chapter 20. Hearkening back, of course... Um, if you know your, 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 your Bible history, to Genesis 3.15, right? You remember Genesis 3.15, the first promise in the Bible of the gospel. Adam and Eve fall, they're dejected, they get the curse, they're walking in darkness, things seem hopeless, and God breathes a promise into their lives in Genesis 3.15 where he says, hey, listen, Eve, one day your seed, one of your descendants is gonna rise up and the serpent is gonna strike his heel, but your descendant is gonna crush his head the very first imagery of the Messiah that we get all the way back in the garden in Genesis 3 culminated in Revelation chapter 20. Friends, today may be hard. For some of you it is, but tomorrow is already won. If you're in Christ, the victory is secure. Suffering for a little bit, yes, maybe now, but glory is coming for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so as we close, I want to just invite you to bow your heads with me for a minute as the band comes. I want to give you just a couple of applications, and then we're going to worship this king, the beast slayer, the son of man. Two applications. Now, if you're here this morning in the room, you're watching online, if you have not yet trusted in the ancient of days, the God of this universe, your creator, if you don't yet have a relationship with the son of man, Jesus Christ, I just simply want to ask you, what are you waiting on? What are you waiting on? What could be better than to know the one who knows you best and loves you most, the one who created you and has a purpose for your life? What are you waiting on? And I want you to know you're invited to the table today. And whether you're online or you're in the room I want you to know today could be the day that changes everything for you. Where you wave the white flag of surrender in your life and you pledge your allegiance in your life for the very first time to the God of this universe, to the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. And today could be the day that you begin a brand new, incredible adventure with your Creator. Just like I did when I was 20 years old, a sophomore in college, walking in darkness, confused, riddled with anxiety, didn't know where I was going in life. 
And Jesus pursued me and chased me down and radically changed my life. And I want you to know, he can do the same thing for you today. In fact, I would wager to bet you're here divinely for a purpose, to receive this invitation to the table of your maker right now. And if you would just turn from your sin, if you would just say to God in your heart right now, right where you're sitting, right where you're watching at home, if you would just say in your heart, God, I repent from my sin. I turn from doing life my way. I'm so tired. I'm so exhausted of trying to do life my way. I want to turn control over to my maker, my designer. I want to follow you. I want to know you. I want to have a new life and a new purpose and a new mission. God, I turn to you. Jesus, I give you my life. If you want to pray that prayer today, let me just invite you. If you're curious, you want to do it today, I'm going to be standing right down here when we finish singing this song. Come talk to me. Let me pray with you. If you're online, reach out to your service host. Man, we'll grab coffee this week. We'll grab a phone call if you're not in Asheville. Let your service host pray with you. But if you don't know the Ancient of Days, the great judge of the universe, that can change for you today. And if you're here, man, and you know Jesus, you know the Son of Man, you're a part of the team, you're a part of the family, I want you to know this chapter, chapter 7, is meant to encourage you. It's not meant to make you scared. This was written to God's people in exile in Babylon. This is meant to inspire courage in us, to fill us with hope because tomorrow is already won. No matter the beast in your life, Jesus wins and you win with him. To God be the glory. Let's pray and then we'll sing. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that though we face many beasts in this world, that none of them hold a candle to you. That in the end, you conquer all. And that one day, the Son of Man, Jesus, is going to come back and he's going to set up a kingdom. It's going to be an everlasting kingdom made up of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who will stand around the throne and sing praises to the Lamb who took away the sins of the world, God. And we will be in that state forever and ever and ever. And so though we suffer for a little while now in this world, God, remind us, would you fill our hearts and our souls with hope that the victory ultimately is already won through Jesus, through his perfect life on our behalf through his sacrificial death to pay for our sins and his glorious resurrection to give us new and abundant life now and forever, we can live as victors in this world. We thank you, Jesus. We could never thank you enough. It's in your strong and beautiful name that we ask when we pray all these things. Amen. Church, let's stand. Let's worship our King.